Hello and welcome to the Backyard Buddhist Podcast. I'm Ron Powell McLean and I'm here with my co-host and friend Danny Hobart. We are here discussing how to shift our consciousness by applying ancient Buddhist wisdom in our everyday lives. Welcome Dan and all of our listeners. Good day, Powell. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's a little it's a little overcast and cool here today, so I'm nesting, I think. I always like overcast days. I feel like it's the sun taking a break. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. See, you're already transforming your consciousness. It is work, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yes, it is. So, you know, but I don't know that everybody knows, that I have been meditating since I was around 12 or 13 years old. I started as a hopeful relief for chronic migraines that I have been having reportedly since the age of two. And over the years, I've tried different types of meditation. And somewhere along the way, I did find Buddhism. I found the ideas and principles to be fairly easy for me to slip into a quiet, quiet sort of solitude of open reflection. And during those headaches, it gave me a tool to begin separating the pain from the suffering, but outside of the experience of the headaches, I was still struggling with anxiety and depression. And I think that's, I think that's so very important um, for all of us, especially in this time that we're secluded and away from our normal distractions and seeing that we all have a bit of unsettledness at our core. So there's a, a first teaching in Buddhism. And for the longest time, it was one that I just sort of brushed off because I didn't quite understand it. And Dan, I think I've shared with you that it felt a bit like a sales pitch. So the Four Noble Truths is the first teaching of the Buddha after he reached enlightenment under the tree. So the idea is that the first noble truth is the indication that there is suffering, that suffering exists. The second noble truth is that there's a cause for that suffering. Third is that there's a remedy or cure for that suffering. And fourth is that the path to that remedy is the eightfold path or the noble eightfold path, which is one of the core teachings um, that we endeavor to embody within our practice. So, I always felt like the Four Noble Truths just led to the Eightfold Path, which I later learned, um, you know, there's eight different elements to the Eightfold Path, but the first one is really about wise view and understanding. So we kind of talked about it on the last podcast, 
that we're we're looking for the realness in whatever we're experiencing. So if we kind of pull apart our experience and we can see what's really going on and we look to the root to see what the cause is of our agitation, then we can then have a skillful action to remedy our situation. So, right. Have I confused anything yet? <laughs> no, pretty straightforward. Uh, before we get too far into whichever parts of that we're going to get into, uh, I did think of a question for you because, and it might be helpful or applicable to people that are new to Buddhism. So when you're pre-teen, early teen, you know, Ron McLean, deciding to meditate what 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 were your ideas of buddhism because you know we've both seen the sort of industry of mindfulness and meditation explode you know fairly recently in our, our pop culture so why why buddhist meditation well i think um, you know, to be super transparent, I think that um, what I was originally doing, the techniques that I was taught um, by uh, the physician that I, I saw when I was 12 or 13 years old, was more of a self-hypnosis method. So really sort of a guided meditation, really. Um, he, he made a recording for me, put it on a cassette tape. That tells you how old I am. Um, <laughs> he put it on this little blue cassette tape um, where he guided me in a couple ways. And the first was really to guide me sort of in a, in a conscious way down a set of stairs and each step that I took I was meant to relax a little bit more, relax and release as I descended the staircase. And by the time I got to the end of the staircase, um, I was probably pretty relaxed. And then he would sort of take you out a door and, you know, down a path and onto a grassy knoll. And um, I would most often fall asleep. <laughs> When once I got to the grassy knoll, um, so I don't really, you know, I didn't really uh, go in depth with the the grassy knoll meditation, but really what it did, um, and I'd say the value of that method started to become a little clearer to me once the the cassette had worn out, and I stopped being able to just turn it on and listen to it. I had to kind of do it in my head. Um, and, a, you know, a migraine is a, you know, is a pretty intense thing. Um, for me, it feels a lot like you're like that ice cream brain freeze, that sort of pain for hours. So light and sound um, and temperature are 
are really um, overwhelming. So mm. what it allowed me to do was just really sort of sink in and pull apart the discomfort of the pain and the, the emotional suffering that was going on as well, because I start to feel panicked and how long is this going to last and how do I make it stop and why me and the, the stories would begin to build. And, you know, now you've got tension on top of pain and it would become exponentially worse. And really my only remedy to get away from it was to manage to fall asleep. So if I could separate and see, okay, that's pain over there and I can't really, I can't stop that. I just have to sort of relax the rest of it. So I was able to start to play with the separation of suffering and pain. Does that make sense? Sure. It's so. the time I'm, I guess then you wouldn't, Obviously, you weren't relating it to Buddhism at some point later yeah. in your life. You, and yeah. you have, yeah. yeah. No, and you know, I grew up a you know, I grew up a good Catholic kid. You know, I I did about everything that um, that I could do. I, I sort of threw myself into trying to understand my religion and use it um, to my benefit. You know, I read the Bible and I did the Rosary and I I sang in the in the choir and you know, we went to church. I I really looked for to that for my spiritual outlet and you know it's you know maybe another show but um you know there were some reasons and you know my sexuality being you know the number one reason that it didn't match and I pulled away um so for a lot of those years so call it age 16 on um I was not practicing um, a practicing Catholic. So in between, I was sort of just, we'll call it spiritual, non-religious. Um, and I wasn't really looking for a religious outlet. But then I stumbled upon Buddhism. And Buddhism really, for me, it matched a lot of my practice of meditation. So... You know, being that many Buddhist schools use meditation as a tool for introspection and growth, that that made sense to me, and I could, I could go along with that. There wasn't anything that I was supposed to um, adopt that I had to believe in a specific way. So it it matched. So. That's a very long story to that question, but um, at the time I started, I wasn't, I don't even think I knew what a Buddhist was at 12 or 13. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, that's what I was just sort of curious about that. Uh, and certainly, you know, through our practice and with our Sangha, people, people come to this in from every different direction and for every different reason and that makes that makes sense you know and to be clear a lot of us find buddhism um as a relief for 
anxiety and depression and that disconnectedness that we feel. Sure. Legal disclaimer. That doesn't mean we can cure these things for you. <laughs> no. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things that attracted me to Buddhism as well, is that it's really an individual endeavor. Um, we're really all responsible for our own application of the, the techniques and the methods and the, you know, even the teachings. It's not saying, believe me. In fact, that's one of the original teachings of the Buddhas, of the Buddha, was him saying, don't believe everything I say. Endeavor to find out for yourself what is true and what is not. Working alone together. Together, yes. So that's, yeah. you know, that's the idea of Sangha, is that we're all, mm -hmm. we're all endeavoring to figure this out for ourselves with the support of each other. So when we meditate together, when, you know, we get 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 people in a space and we're all meditating at the same time, just by our sheer presence, we're showing up and supporting, hey, I can do this, I, you know, it, maybe a little uncomfortable for me but it's uncomfortable for all of us so we'll do it together yeah it's and it's funny it doesn't make a lot of sense to think that a bunch of people even strangers people or at least people you hadn't met before sitting in a room quietly would ha have some different effect than doing that in your own house but it's it certainly does. It does. And I've even found, you know, in this, in this strange time, in this pandemic time, you know, we're, we're doing a daily meditation uh, online and I feel it. Um, I, you know, I have my little electronics around me and, you know, I try to like at least bring up our, our Facebook live so I can see, you know, that I'm on for one, you know, that I'm not just talking into the air, but, um, it's it's great to see when other people pop up as well and see that we're all kind of checking in and and doing our thing one of the before i started meditating in groups i would look for things like insight timer which is you know an app where mm -hmm. i can you know meditate for different amounts of time sometimes it's guided sometimes it's silent you can you know fix it so that you have bells at the beginning and the, the end. bells mark has like eight has like eight <laughs> bells i love just digging the bells yeah but it, you know what the cool part for me was the interconnectedness that i could see that other people were on at the same time they could be around the world and there was a i haven't been on it in a long time but um, there was a, a feature where you could message people and say, hey, thanks for meditating with me. And that was so impactful for me because, you know, a lot of my meditation at that time would be in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep and I was really overcome with anxiety. Um, and to see that someone was seeing me and supporting me in just that small way was 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 pretty cool so 
speaking of apps, and now here's the thing. I diverted you once, and I'm about to potentially do it again. So if we want to circle back now or in, in a few minutes to the Four Noble Truths, certainly, you know, let's do that. But so, you know, Calm is another super popular yes. meditation app. And, of course, all my friends that are teachers – uh, have free use of that. They use it in their classrooms even sometimes. It's really pretty cool. But so they have music, they have nature sounds, they have guided meditations. Oftentimes, though, we learn or are taught or practice meditation in silence. Uh, this is a huge question or a small question, but is there a right way to meditate? Does it matter how you do it? my answer is you have to really kind of go with your own flavor. So, you know, I think of each meditation technique and even, you know, some of the schools of Buddhism, I think of as flavors of ice cream. So sometimes I want strawberry and sometimes I want vanilla. Um, and sometimes I go crazy and get the, you know, Rocky road or something. But I think that you need to know what, you respond to. So like for me, um, part of my practice is a silent practice. And part of my practice is a chanting practice. Um, and they're not, they're not actually so different. But sometimes I need a little extra to get me on the seat. And that means using my voice. So the meditation techniques are the same. So if I need to place in some nature sounds because it helps me to soothe a bit and helps me with controlling some of my reactivity, then it can be very powerful. The, the, the other side of that is that we can get lost in sort of a bliss thing where we are time traveling we're you know we're we're listening to the ocean waves and a little piano in the background and now i'm sort of transported to that place and i think oh you know wouldn't it be really mm -hmm. great if my husband was on this beach too and we were enjoying a margarita and feeling the wind and remember that one time that we went to to Florida and we were sitting on the beach and we took the walk and it was so nice. And now I'm time traveling into the past or I'm time traveling into the future thinking, Oh, I really want to go to the beach with my husband or I want to have this experience. And now we've left the present moment and that's not really what we want to do. If we consciously need to do that, it's okay. Does that, does the difference make it, Oh yeah, no. The yeah, the example's perfect. Uh, it, it's a matter of making the the meditation sort of a part of your story that you tell yourself, or part of the life that you live in your head, versus uh, meditating with intent or with some clarity of being present. 
Well, and using the tools as we need them. So, so for instance, we were talking about anxiety and depression. These are some really overwhelming emotions that can that can boil up. And me taking an introspective journey all the time, trying to figure out what the cause is of my anxiety, may not always be the right pill, if you will. So sometimes I need to yeah. I need to consciously take a trip to the beach. So I need to escape this. And we, we do that in other ways. It could be Netflix. It could be a bag of chips. It could be a book. It could be a walk. It could be, you know, I'm going to, you know, go and play with the kids or I'm going to play with the dog to distract myself from this that is making me so uncomfortable and plaguing me. Okay. So, here's here's what we've learned today <laughs> your buddhist path is is individual yes. you sort of you sort of make your own your style of meditating uh may change your style of practice may change from time to time and uh it's also individual right so you really have to trust yourself that whatever it is that you're doing for your practice, however it is that you meditate, you, sort, you have to trust yourself that it's beneficial. And, and find confidence in it. That's really important yeah. that we start to find you know, a, an ease in that confidence that we know that it's a it's a good thing for us so we can be our own inner compass to understand we're going the right direction like this is helpful for me and a lot of us can feel that you you do a 10 minute meditation and immediately you feel like okay this that helped that helped yeah so we know that that's you know that's true it's going to you know it's going to get us to a place of calm. Now, holding on to the calm is another technique that we have to build. You know, taking that that skill off the cushion, sort of stage yep. two. Okay, one more sort of practical tip or thought that I'd like to throw out there. You know, there's in a it seems like in the meditation world and even in the Buddhist world, sometimes you, you think about Buddha sitting under a tree for seven years or the monks in some Tibetan monastery that meditate. Even, even your teacher who went on multiple three year sort of solitary go in a cave <laughs> but, but you know experiences uh so can you meditate for a, i'll say in my practice i i shoot for 20 minutes sometimes i do more sometimes it's less sometimes i am stuck with one minute or five minutes mm -hmm. uh, sometimes i'll do three 10 minute ones in a day that's okay, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, it's, it's really not the, it's not the length of time, you know, you're not going to necessarily get more out of, you know, an hour long meditation than you would out of a 10 minute meditation um, in the beginning stages. I think as you feel, you know, comfortable doing more, I mean, think about this is like going to the, the gym, you know, we're not going to go to the gym and get on the treadmill the first day and do two hours. We're going to walk away a little, little sore and with maybe some regret and not get back to where we need to be. So for me, meditation in itself, when, you know, when I sort of, you know, switched the, the gear of getting away from, you know, even guided meditation CDs, it was easy for me to just listen to somebody's buttery voice and, you know, some tinkling piano or gongs and bongs and wind chimes and all of that, that that's very soothing and, and an easy access. But when I started actually doing it silently, um, it was a little harder. And I felt like every minute I was restarting, I was beginning again, and it was really frustrating um, to show up. So it was a little tough. So I, you know, that's where we have to kind of use our techniques and use the different types of, of meditation to get there. So if we need to start off with guided stuff, start out with guided stuff. And, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, kind of a, a guide at the beginning to sort of set us into our seat and then a focused and concentration time that's really on me to focus in this present moment and keep bringing myself back to the present moment, noticing, catching myself when I'm distracted and then returning and releasing that attention back into the present moment. So, and then we just kind of release in the third part of it and, and just flow along with, with our experience. So, we can continue uh, now along the let's talk about meditation path. Uh, or again, we could jump back to the to the the meat, the Ten Commandments of Buddhism, <laughs> otherwise known as the Four Noble Truths. What do you well, think? Well, I think there's you know there's some important stuff that I want to sort of. Um, introduced today and you know beyond sort of the four noble truths there's and and inclusive of the four noble truths there's three what we'll tar we'll, we'll call the dharma gates so these are impermanence the truth of impermanence the truth of interconnectedness and the truth of suffering so the four noble truths is that last one the first one is impermanence, that everything, everything that we know, everything that's in our experience, all the physical things, all of the material things, all of everything is impermanent. And, and specifically meaning that everything is always in a churning of change. So nothing nothing lives forever, no structure, no thing is always going to remain exactly the same. So there's a truth in that impermanence. 
that can be really um, scary. So when we think about impermanence, the first thing that comes up is us. Like, what about me? What about my consciousness? What about Ron Powell as, you know, as an individual? Like, does that mean, you know, does that mean I'm definitively going to die and I'm not going to have my nirvana or my heaven or what does that mean? So that brings up some anxiety. Spoiler alert, folks. Spoiler alert. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. So then the next part is interconnectedness so that we are all inseparably interconnected. And sometimes that takes a little bit of really grokking and um, contemplating this interconnectedness. I think, you know, right now with the truth of this virus, that's, that's uh, making its way around. We see how incredibly interconnected we are and that even, you know, we must find, you know, a safe distance to, to interact because we are so inseparably interconnected. There's, we're all from the same place. We're all reacting in the same ways. So that's kind of the other piece of it. So we all, we all have fear. We all have um, love and joy and really the same experience is not exactly, you know, not exactly the same for everybody, but it's all made of the, of, of the same elements. And then suffering is that thing that's unquestionably optional. It's optional. We can have discomfort. We can have fear. We can have pain. But then our reactivity is the suffering. So, and there's some real depth in there, and the you know the different types of suffering. It's not just like I'm pinned under a rock kind of suffering. It's minute dissatisfaction. It can be, you know, it could be just that I'm I'm operating today without a lot of sleep last night, so I'm kind of prickly and agitated and that can be an underlying thing if you're you know if you're living in a situation where you have um, persistent fear because you feel that you may be in jeopardy or may be in harm that's you know a kind of a condition that we sort of live with each and every day that may not you know it may not feel like it's in your face every second but it's in our present experience. So as a, as a practitioner, it's kind of our job to look for that suffering. Ask ourselves, how am I suffering? And that's kind what? of the, that's the dawning of it. So that's like the, the first of the Four Noble Truths. I am suffering and all of us are suffering right now in this very moment. So we have to, as individuals, we have to find where that suffering is. So it could be that you have, you know, you have a toothache, you could be hungry, you could be tired, you could be constipated, whatever it might be, but you're suffering in some way. 
So that's the first. The second is that there's a cause for that suffering, right? So maybe I'm tired. So why am I not sleeping well? And I can ask those why questions. Why am I not sleeping well? Because um, it, you know, I was I was restless thinking about right. I'm going to have a job next, or got it. Woke up too early, or right. Yeah, and you know, it could be a sick, you know, cyclical thing. It could mm -hmm. be, you know, maybe you have insom insomnia. And it's a, you know, happening every day kind of thing. So we endeavor to look and find what the root cause is of that. And by that exploration and discovery, we can find how we can act in a skillful way. Instead of having an unconscious behavior that is agitated or angry or depressed or anxious, we can have skillful action to replace that. So I can nurture myself, I can hold, hold myself up and feed what I need to mitigate that suffering. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, so a while back, this was during one of your Sunday uh, Dharma talks, or it may have been one of the other times you and I were talking. I'm now I can't remember where it came from, but I'd, I I'd been sort of caught up on the idea of impermanence, and my belief was or understanding was that impermanence means everything ends. Mm. Uh, that is a frankly a logical definition style of something that's impermanent uh, you know the paint washes away so it's gone and that that was i guess a little bit dangerous for me now as i reflect upon it in that you can go down this sort of nihilist path of if everything's impermanent and ends then well frankly why does it matter it doesn't because it's all gonna end anyway uh so the big the big switch for me on that which, which was an ah one of those aha moments that you'll get with regular practice in in buddhism was when i when you said that impermanence is change so the paint that washes away is the the molecules that made it up the the parts of the paint you know that came from whatever they make paint out of used to be lead and water and oils and all these other parts uh they're still there they're just not paint anymore at least as we know it so uh that that was such a meaningful learning experience for me that I wanted to point that out while we were talking about it. To me, it's like, it's the, when I read this, uh, the second law of thermodynamics that basically says that everything that comes together comes apart. So there is nothing born, nothing that dies. It's all from the same, it's all from the same 
root ingredients. They just keep coming together and coming apart and coming together and coming apart. So it's this constant churn of change that is reality. It's always been happening. So we can almost take a, an ease and a comfort that it's just sort of the way that things work. So there's, there's nothing for me to control in that. Buddha as physicist. <laughs> I love when Buddhism meets science. Uh, it, you know, you have to wonder over time if, since it's been around for so long, uh, and, and as you practice, you see Buddhism in many, many different sciences. But yeah, I, I, I really wonder if it just hasn't been around for so long and has such common sense in, in my understanding that it sort of impermeated, you know, it, it, it embedded itself in it's sort of the culture or the human experience, or it's so naturally occurring, uh, even if people don't realize it, that it's affecting their, you know, their discoveries and their experiments and their research and the laws and all the things that come about, you know? So interconnectedness then, uh, skipping over to that, uh, there's a TV show called The Good Place that just ended, and you did a little guest spot on a local radio show uh, about the, the ultimate finale of that. So spoiler alert incoming, <laughs> folks. Uh, if you are watching The Good Place, uh, take a break for a few minutes. Uh, I highly, we would both highly recommend it, though, if you haven't. The The finale of the finale uh, was pretty spectacular. The Very, very briefly, the characters in the show are dead, and they are in the afterlife, and the multiple seasons of the show run over all these, of course, crazy situations that happen, and they're related to they're in hell and they want to get to heaven. No one gets into heaven. It, it, it's just a calamity of what happens to me and what, what sort of, what are you? What are we? So in the very end, the, the character that is the, uh, the philosophy professor and, and is deep into Kant and David Hume and, and all these, you know, going back to Socrates and, Seneca and all these people uh, he, that he quotes constantly, uh, he sort of describes it, uh, what happens. So, so, so at the end of the show, the characters that are already dead, they actually then die. Like they, 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 their afterlife ends or changes. Well, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> or something. So, they cross or something, over something. Like, they, they go through a gate yeah. and what's what's on the other side is sort of unknown to you know us the viewer so and if you want to explain it uh, i'd be happy to listen to you but i, I love what chidi how he explained you know what we really are and how we're interconnected i want you to do it okay well that's that's fine because i get i get all excited about it so <laughs> i could tell 
and they're there he's sitting on the couch with with his love interest who is the polar opposite of him uh he's a thoughtful cautious person that that will not make a decision under any circumstance because there are always too many correct arguments to be made as to what action you should take and she on the other hand is entirely impulsive emotional irrational uh and just runs around through life like a like a frankly like most of us um so but he explains it he says you have to look to the east to really describe or explain our life experience and he says it's like we're all it's such a beautiful way it's done and i won't do it justice but he says it's like we're all water drops of water in an ocean and we're all together see we're all part of one big thing we're all part of the great big ocean um but we're still individual water drops and it's like when a splash or a wave hits and and water sort of flies off and flies everywhere at that point you're literally just your own little water droplet eventually you come back to the ocean eventually you fall back down eventually you land on the beach and go back to the ocean however it happens for you everybody's sort of journey as a water droplet is different but you started together you're still together and you end up together constant churning of change so we become a water droplet we become part of a wave we become part of a splash we're in the depths all together all in the same all in the same the same ocean that is this topic this lesson this idea of interconnectedness is one of my most favorite buddhist uh ideas uh because it's just so lovely and so peaceful to think and to feel it, it i feel uh camaraderie i feel you know the need for teamwork i feel love for the rest of life uh when i when i think about this topic it's really beautiful so it's one of my favorites at least right now well i think there's two sides to it as well and i you know i've i've uh coached enough enough people um who have found buddhist principles that are that are kind of terrified what do you mean we're all interconnected i you know sure spent a lifetime becoming me me mine i not we mine yeah that's my stuff my career my personality my 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 and that feels scary and ungrounded and um, you know the same with impermanence what do you mean i'm impermanent right, like right. i take my vitamins i work out like i do all these things to sustain my being and what do you mean it's it's going to be all in vain spoiler alert, <laughs> spoiler alert. you know sign up practice buddhism right it will, we promise you'll have meaning right that was sarcasm folks 
Just, I doesn't always come across. <laughs> Buddhist comedians over here. Yeah, I know. So it is, um, it's important for us to see all of that, you know, that there is a, a discomfort in the truth sometimes. And part of what we're doing is settling into an introspection of what that is. And you may not have, you know, the, the full view of it the first time you contemplate it. But as you question it, as you challenge it, there is a truth in each one of those things, the impermanence, the interconnectedness, and the suffering. There's a truth that all of them are there. And, and to me, an undeniable truth. And so when I, can, when I can see things for what they are, I can let calm abiding sort of settle in and settle me. So I don't find as much anxiety when I can see, you know, the bright light of awareness shining on that which is, is uncomfortable. And I can understand the cause of that, that discomfort. So for many of us, the turmoil of anxiety, depression, and dissatisfaction are present in our daily experiences. Meditation is the practice tool that allows you the space to see your individual suffering. And through introspection, we find the cause of this discomfort. With the spotlight of awareness, we can transform these experiences with compassionate action learning to support ourselves in a way that only we can do for ourselves. So endeavor to practice a little today and find that introspection that will find you the corresponding calm abiding. So we thank everyone for joining us today for this podcast and tune in and uh, find us on Facebook and send us your questions. We'll be happy to answer them here. Thank you, Paulo. And remember everybody, meditate as fast as you can. <laughs> Bye everyone.